Chapter Seventeen of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wyke. Section Twenty Nine. Chapter. 17. Lincoln, the president, did not differ greatly from Lincoln, the lawyer and politician. In the latter capacity, only had his old friends in Illinois known him. For a long time after taking his seat, they were curious to know what change, if any, his exalted station had made in him. He was no longer amid people who had seen him grow from the village lawyer to the highest rank in the land, and whose hands he could grasp in the confidence of a time-tried friendship. But now he was surrounded by wealth, power, fashion, influence, by adroit politicians and artful schemers of every sort. In the past, his Illinois, and particularly his Springfield friends, had shared the anxiety and responsibility of every step he had made. But now they were no longer to continue in the partnership. Many of them wanted no office, but all of them felt great interest as well as pride in his future. A few attempted to keep up a correspondence with him, but his answers were tardy and irregular. Lincoln, even after his elevation to the presidency, always had an eye out for his friends, as the following letters will abundantly prove. Executive Mansion, Washington, April twentieth, 1864. Calvin Truesdale, Esquire, Postmaster, Rock Island, Illinois. Thomas J. Pickett, late agent of the Quartermaster's Department for the island of Rock Island, has been removed or suspended from that position on a charge of having sold timber and stone from the island for his private benefit. Mr. Pickett is an old acquaintance and friend of mine, and I will thank you, if you will, to set a day or days and place on and at which to take testimony on the point. Notify Mr. Pickett and one J. B. Danforth, who, as I understand, makes the charge, to be present with their witnesses. Take the testimony in writing offered by both sides and report it in full to me. Please do this for me. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. The man Pickett was formerly the editor of a newspaper in northern Illinois and had, to use an expression of later days, inaugurated in the columns of his paper Lincoln's Boom for the Presidency. When he afterwards fell under suspicion, no one came to his rescue sooner than the President himself. The following letter needs no explanation. Executive Mansion, Washington, August 27, 1862. Honorable Washington Talcott. My dear sir, I have determined to appoint you collector. I now have a very special request to make of you, which is that you will make no war upon Mr. Washburn, who is also my friend, 
and of longer standing than yourself. I will even be obliged if you can do something for him if occasion presents. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. Mr. Talcott, to whom it was addressed, was furnished a letter of introduction by the President as follows. The Secretary of the Treasury and the Commissioner of Internal Revenue will please see Mr. Talcott, one of the best men there is, and, if any difference, one they would like better than they do me. A. Lincoln. August 18, 1862. Because he did not appoint a goodly portion of his early associates to comfortable offices, and did not interest himself in the welfare of everyone whom he had known in Illinois, or met while on the circuit, the erroneous impression grew that his elevation had turned his head. There was no foundation for such an unwarranted conclusion. Lincoln had not changed a particle. He was overrun with duties and weighted down with cares. His surroundings were different, and his friends were new, but he himself was the same calm, just, and devoted friend as of yore. His letters were few and brief, but they showed no lack of gratitude or appreciation, as the following one to me will testify. Executive Mansion, February 3, 1862. Dear William, Yours of January 30th is just received. Do just as you say about the money matters. As you well know, I have not time enough to write a letter of respectable length. God bless you, says your friend, A. Lincoln. On February 19th, 1863, I received this dispatch from Mr. Lincoln. Would you accept a job of about a month's duration at St. Louis, $5 a day and mileage? Answer. A. Lincoln. His letters to others were of the same warm and generous tenor, but yet the foolish notion prevailed that he had learned to disregard the condition and claims of his Springfield friends. One of the latter who visited Washington returned somewhat displeased because Mr. Lincoln failed to inquire after the health and welfare of each one of his old neighbors. The report spread that he cared nothing for his home or the friends who had made him what he was. Those who entertained this opinion of the man forgot that he was not exactly the property of Springfield and Illinois, but the president of all the states in the Union. The following letter from a disappointed Illinois friend will serve to illustrate the perplexities that beset Lincoln in disposing of the claims of personal friendship. It was written by a man of no inconsiderable reputation in Illinois, where he at one time filled a state office. Lincoln is a singular man, and I must confess I never knew him. He has, for twenty years past, used me as a plaything to accomplish his own ends, but the moment he was elevated to his proud position, he seems all at once to have entirely changed his whole nature and become altogether a new being. He knows no one, and the road to his favor is always open to his enemies while the door is hermetically sealed to his old friends. In this connection it may not be out of order to refer briefly to the settlement by Mr. Lincoln of the claims his leading Illinois friends had on him. 
as before observed his own election to the presidency cancelled illinois as a factor in the cabinet problem but in no wise disposed of the friends whom the public expected and whom he himself intended should be provided for of these latter the oldest and most zealous and effective was david davis it is not extravagance taking their long association together in mind to say that davis had done more for lincoln than any dozen other friends he had i had done lincoln many many favors had electioneered for him spent my money for him worked and toiled for him david davis statement september twentieth eighteen sixty six of course after lincoln was securely installed in office the people especially in illinois awaited his recognition of davis what was finally done is minutely told in a letter by leonard sweat which it is proper here to insert chicago illinois august twenty ninth eighteen eighty seven william h herndon my dear sir your inquiry in reference to the circumstances of the appointment of david davis as one of the justices of the supreme court reached me last evening in reply i beg leave to recall the fact that in eighteen sixty the politicians of illinois were divided into three divisions which were represented in the decatur convention by the votes on the nomination for governor the largest vote was for norman b judd of chicago his strength in the main being the northern part of the state i was next in order of strength and richard yates the third but the divisions were not materially unequal the result was yates was nominated his strength being about springfield and jacksonville extending to quincy on the west and mine was at bloomington and vicinity and south and southeast these divisions were kept up a while after mr lincoln's election and were considered in the distribution of federal patronage a vacancy in the united states senate occurred early in eighteen sixty one by the death of stephen a douglas and governor yates appointed oliver h browning of quincy to fill the vacancy there was also a vacancy upon the supreme bench of the united states to be filled from this general vicinity by mr lincoln in the early part of his administration and judge davis of bloomington and mr browning of quincy were aspirants for the position mr browning had the advantage that lincoln was new in his seat and senators were august personages and being in the senate and a most courteous and able gentleman mr browning succeeded in securing nearly all the senatorial strength and mr lincoln was nearly swept off his feet by the current of influence davis's supporters were the circuit lawyers mainly in the eastern and central part of the state these lawyers were at home and their presence was not a living force felt constantly by the president at washington i was then living at bloomington and met judge davis every day as months elapsed we used to get word from washington in reference to the condition of things finally one day the word came that lincoln had said i do not know what i may do when the time comes but there has never been a day when if i had to act i should not have appointed browning 
Judge Davis, General Orme, and myself held a consultation in my law office at Bloomington. We decided that the remark was too Lincolnian to be mistaken, and no man but he could have put the situation so quaintly. We decided also that the appointment was gone and sat there glum over the situation. I finally broke the silence, saying in substance, the appointment is gone, and I am going to pack my carpet sack for Washington. No, you are not, said Davis. Yes, I am, was my reply. Lincoln is being swept off his feet by the influence of these senators, and I will have the luxury of one more talk with him before he acts. I did go home, and two days thereafter, in the morning about seven o'clock, for I knew Mr. Lincoln's habits well, was at the White House, and spent most of the forenoon with him. I tried to impress upon him that he had been brought into prominence by the circuit court lawyers of the old Eighth Circuit, headed by Judge Davis. If, I said, Judge Davis, with his tact and force, had not lived, and all of the things had been as they were, I believe you would not now be sitting where you are. He replied gravely, Yes, that is so. Now it is a common law of mankind, said I, that one raised into prominence is expected to recognize the force that lifts him, or if from a pinch, the force that lets him out. The Tsar Nicholas was once attacked by an assassin. A kindly hand watered off the blow and saved his life. The Tsar hunted out the owner of that hand and strewed his pathway with flowers through life. The Emperor Napoleon III has hunted out everybody who even tossed him a biscuit in his prison at Ham and has made him rich. Here is Judge Davis, whom you know to be in every respect qualified for this position, and you ought in justice to yourself and public expectation to give him this place. We had an earnest, pleasant forenoon, and I thought I had the best of the argument and I think he thought so, too. I left him and went to Willard's Hotel to think over the interview, and there a new thought struck me. I therefore wrote a letter to Mr. Lincoln and returned to the White House. Getting in, I read it to him and left it with him. It was in substance that he might think if he gave Davis this place, the latter, when he got to Washington, would not give him any peace until he gave me a place equally as good, that I recognized the fact that he could not give this place to Davis, which would be charged to the Bloomington faction in our state politics, and then give me anything I would have and be just to the party there, that this appointment, if made, should kill two birds with one stone that I would accept it as one-half for me and one-half for the judge, and that thereafter, if I or any of my friends ever troubled him, he could draw that letter as a plea in bar on that subject. As I read it, Lincoln said, If you mean that, among friends, as it reads, I will take it and make the appointment. He at once did as he said. He then made a request of the judge after his appointment in reference to a clerk in his circuit, and wrote him a notice of the appointment, which Davis received the same afternoon I returned to Bloomington. 
Judge Davis was about fifteen years my senior. I had come to his circuit at the age of twenty-four, and between him and Lincoln I had grown up, leaning in hours of weakness on their own great arms for support. I was glad of the opportunity to put in the might of my claims upon Lincoln and give it to Davis, and have been glad I did it every day since. An unknown number of people have almost every week since, speaking perhaps extravagantly, asked me in a quasi-confidential manner, How was it that you and Lincoln were so intimate and he never gave you anything? I have generally said, It seems to me that is my question, and so long as I don't complain, I do not see why you should. I may be pardoned also for saying that I have not considered every man not holding an office out of place in life. I got my eyes open on this subject before I got an office, and as in Washington I saw the congressman in decline, I prayed that my latter end might not be like his. Yours truly, Leonard Sweat before his departure for Washington, Mr. Lincoln had on several occasions referred in my presence to the gravity of the national questions that stared him in the face. Yet from what he said, I caught no definite idea of what his intentions were. He told me he would rely upon me to keep him informed of the situation about home, what his friends were saying of him, and whether his course was meeting with their approval. He suggested that I should write him frequently, and that arrangements would be made with his private secretary, Mr. Nicolay, that my letters should pass through the latter's hands unopened. This plan was adhered to, and I have every reason now to believe that all my letters to Lincoln, although they contain no great secrets of state, passed unread into his hands. I was what the newspaper men would call a frequent contributor. I wrote oftener than he answered, sometimes remitting him his share of old fees, sometimes dilating on national affairs, but generally confining myself to local politics and news in and around Springfield. I remember of writing him two copious letters, one on the necessity of keeping up the draft, the other admonishing him to hasten his proclamation of emancipation. In the latter I was especially fervid, assuring him, if he emancipated the slaves, he could go down the other side of life filled with the consciousness of duty well done, and along a pathway blazing with eternal glory. How my rhetoric or sentiment struck him, I never learned, for in the rush of executive business he never responded to either of the letters. Late in the summer of 1861, as elsewhere mentioned in these chapters, I made my first and only visit to Washington while he was president. My mission was intended to promote the prospects of a brother-in-law, Charles W. Chatterton, who desired to lay claim to an office in the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Mr. Lincoln accompanied me to the office of the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, William P. Dole of Paris, Illinois, told a good story, and made the request which secured the coveted office, 
an indian agency in an amazingly short time this was one of the few favors i asked of mr lincoln and he granted it speedily without delay freely without purchase and fully without denial i remained in washington for several days after this and notwithstanding the pressure of business he made me spend a good portion of the time at the white house one thing he could scarcely cease from referring to was the persistence of the office seekers they slipped in he said through the half-open doors of the executive mansion they dogged his steps if he walked they edged their way through the crowds and thrust their papers in his hands when he rode and taking it all in all they well-nigh worried him to death he said that one day as he was passing down pennsylvania avenue a man came running after him hailed him and thrust a bundle of papers in his hands it angered him not a little and he pitched the papers back saying i'm not going to open shop here he said that if the government passed through the rebellion without dismemberment there was the strongest danger of its falling a prey to the rapacity of the office-seeking class this human struggle and scramble for office were his words for a way to live without work will finally test the strength of our institutions a good part of the day during my stay i would spend with him in his office or waiting-room i saw the endless line of callers and met the scores of dignitaries one usually meets at the white house even now but nothing took place worthy of special mention here one day horace maynard and andrew johnson both senators from tennessee came in arm in arm they declined to sit down but at once set to work to discuss with the president his recent action in some case in which they were interested maynard seemed very earnest in what he said beware mr president he said and do not go too fast there is danger ahead i know that responded lincoln good-naturedly but i shall go just so fast and only so fast as i think i am right and the people are ready for the step hardly half a dozen words followed when the pair wheeled around and walked away the day following i left washington for home i separated from mr lincoln at the white house he followed me to the rear portico where i entered the carriage to ride to the railroad depot he grasped me warmly by the hand and bade me a fervent good-bye it was the last time i ever saw him alive mrs ninian edwards who it will be remembered was the sister of mrs lincoln some time before her death furnished me an account of her visit to washington some of the incidents of which are so characteristic that i cannot refrain from giving them room here this lady without endeavoring to suppress mention of her sister's many caprices and eccentricities while mistress of the white house remarked that having been often solicited by the lincolns to visit them she and her husband in answer to the cordial invitation at last made the journey to washington one day while there she relates in order to calm his mind to turn his attention away from 
business and cheer him up, I took Mr. Lincoln down through the conservatory belonging to the executive mansion and showed him the world of flowers represented there. He followed me patiently through. How beautiful these flowers are! How gorgeous these roses! Here are exotics, I exclaimed, in admiration, gathered from the remotest corners of the earth, and grand beyond description. A moody silence followed, broken finally by Mr. Lincoln, with this observation. Yes, this whole thing looks like spring, but do you know, I have never been in here before. I don't know why it is so, but I never cared for flowers. I seem to have no taste, natural or acquired, for such things. I induced him one day, continued Mrs. Edwards, to walk to the park north of the White House. He hadn't been there, he said, for a year. On such occasions, when alone or in the company of a close friend, and released from the restraint of his official surroundings, he was wont to throw from his shoulders many a burden. He was a man I loved and respected. He was a good man, an honest and true one. Much of his seeming disregard, which has been tortured into ingratitude, was due to his peculiar construction. His habits, like himself, were odd and wholly irregular. He would move around in a vague, abstracted way, as if unconscious of his own or anyone else's existence. He had no expressed fondness for anything, and ate mechanically. I have seen him sit down at the table absorbed in thought, and never, unless recalled to his senses, would he think of food. But, however peculiar and secretive he may have seemed, he was anything but cold. Beneath what the world saw lurked a nature as tender and poetic as any I ever knew. The death of his son Willie, which occurred in Washington, made a deep impression on him. It was the first death in his family, save an infant who died a few days after its birth in Springfield. On the evening we strolled through the park, he spoke of it with deep feeling, and he frequently afterward referred to it. When I announced my intention of leaving Washington, he was much affected at the news of my departure. We were strolling through the White House grounds, when he begged me with tears in his eyes to remain longer. You have such strong control and such an influence over Mary, he contended, that when troubles come you can console me. The picture of the man's despair never faded from my vision. Long after my return to Springfield, on reverting to the sad separation, my heart ached because I was unable in my feeble way to lighten his burden. In the summer of 1866, I wrote to Mrs. Lincoln, then in Chicago, asking for a brief account of her own and her husband's life or mode of living while at the White House. She responded as follows. 375 West Washington Street, Chicago, Illinois, August 28, 1866. Honorable William H. Herndon. My dear sir, 
owing to robert's absence from chicago your last letter to him was only shown me last evening the recollection of my beloved husband's truly affectionate regard for you and the knowledge of your great love and reverence for the best man that ever lived would of itself cause you to be cherished with the sincerest regard by my sons and myself in my overwhelming bereavement those who loved my idolized husband aside from disinterested motives are very precious to me and mine my grief has been so uncontrollable that in consequence i have been obliged to bury myself in solitude knowing that many whom i would see could not fully enter into the state of my feelings i have been thinking for some time past i would like to see you and have a long conversation i wish to know if you will be in springfield next wednesday week september fourth if so at ten o'clock in the morning you will find me at the st nicholas hotel please mention this visit to springfield to no one it is a most sacred one as you may suppose to visit the tomb which contains my all in life my husband if it will not be convenient or if business at the time specified should require your absence should you visit chicago any day this week i will be pleased to see you i remain very truly mary lincoln i met mrs lincoln at the hotel in springfield according to appointment our interview was somewhat extended in range but none the less interesting her statement made at the time now lies before me my husband intended she said when he was through with his presidential term to take me and our boys with him to europe after his return from europe he intended to cross the rocky mountains and go to california where the soldiers were to be digging out gold to pay the national debt during his last days he and senator sumner became great friends and were closely attached to each other they were down the river after richmond was taken were full of joy and gladness at the thought of the war being over up to eighteen sixty four mr lincoln wanted to live in springfield and if he died be buried there also but after that and only a short time before his death he changed his mind slightly but never really settled on any particular place the last time i remembered of his referring to the matter he said he thought it would be good for himself and me to spend a year or more traveling as to his nature he was the kindest man most tender husband and loving father in the world he gave us all unbounded liberty saying to me always when i asked for anything you know what you want go and get it and never asking if it were necessary he was very indulgent of his children he never neglected to praise them for any of their good acts he often said it is my pleasure that my children are free and happy and unrestrained by parental tyranny love is the chain whereby to bind a child to its parents my husband placed great reliance on my knowledge of human nature often telling me when about to make some important appointment that he had no knowledge of men and their motives 
It was his intention to remove Seward as soon as peace with the South was declared. He greatly disliked Andrew Johnson. Once the latter, when we were in company, followed us around not a little. It displeased Mr. Lincoln so much, he turned abruptly and asked, loud enough to be heard by others, Why is this man forever following me? At another time, when we were down at City Point, Johnson, still following us, was drunk. Mr. Lincoln, in desperation, exclaimed, For God's sake, don't ask Johnson to dine with us. Sumner, who was along, joined in the request. Mr. Lincoln was mild in his manners, but he was a terribly firm man when he set his foot down. None of us, no man or woman, could rule him after he had once fully made up his mind. I could always tell when in deciding anything he had reached the ultimatum. At first he was very cheerful, then he lapsed into thoughtfulness, bringing his lips together in a firm compression. When these symptoms developed, I fashioned myself accordingly, and so did all others have to do sooner or later. When we first went to Washington, many thought Mr. Lincoln was weak, but he rose grandly with the circumstances. I told him once of the assertion I had heard coming from the friends of Seward, that the latter was the power behind the throne, that he could rule him. He replied, I may not rule myself, but certainly Seward shall not. The only ruler I have is my conscience, following God in it, and these men will have to learn that yet. Some of the newspaper attacks on him gave him great pain. I sometimes read them to him, but he would beg me to desist, saying, I have enough to bear now, but yet I care nothing for them. If I'm right, I'll live, and if wrong, I'll die anyhow, so let them fight at me unrestrained. My playful response would be, the way to learn is to hear both sides. I once assured him, Chase and certain others who were scheming to supplant him, ought to be restrained in their evil designs. Do good to them who hate you, was his generous answer, and turn their ill will into friendship. I often told Mr. Lincoln that God would not let any harm come of him. We had passed through four long years, terrible and bloody years, unscathed, and I believed we would be released from all danger. He gradually grew into that belief himself, and the old gloomy notion of his unavoidable taking off was becoming dimmer as time passed away. Cheerfulness merged into joyfulness. The skies cleared. The end of the war rose dimly into view when the great blow came and shut him out forever. For a glimpse of Lincoln's habits while a resident of Washington and an executive officer, there is no better authority than John Hay, who served as one of his secretaries. In 1866, Mr. Hay, then a member of the United States Legation in Paris, wrote me an interesting account which so faithfully delineates Lincoln in his public home 
that I cannot refrain from quoting it entire. Although the letter was written in answer to a list of questions I asked, and was prepared without any attempt at arrangement, still it is nonetheless interesting. Lincoln went to bed ordinarily, it begins, from ten to eleven o'clock, unless he happened to be kept up by important news, in which case he would frequently remain at the War Department till one or two. He rose early. When he lived in the country at the soldier's home, he would be up and dressed, eat his breakfast, which was extremely frugal, an egg, a piece of toast, coffee, etc., and ride into Washington all before eight o'clock. In the winter, at the White House, he was not quite so early. He did not sleep well, but spent a good while in bed. Tad usually slept with him. He would lie around the office until he fell asleep, and Lincoln would shoulder him and take him off to bed. He pretended to begin business at ten o'clock in the morning, but in reality the ante-rooms and halls were full long before that hour people anxious to get the first axe ground. He was extremely unmethodical. It was a four-year struggle on Nicolay's part and mine to get him to adopt some systematic rules. He would break through every regulation as fast as it was made. Anything that kept the people themselves away from him he disapproved, although they nearly annoyed the life out of him by unreasonable complaints and requests. He wrote very few letters, and did not read one in fifty that he received. At first we tried to bring them to his notice, but at last he gave the whole thing over to me, and signed, without reading them, the letters I wrote in his name. He wrote perhaps half a dozen a week himself, not more. Nicolay received members of Congress and other visitors who had business with the executive office, communicated to the Senate and House the messages of the President, and exercised a general supervision over the business. I opened and read the letters, answered them, looked over the newspapers, supervised the clerks who kept the records, and in Nicolay's absence did his work also. When the President had any rather delicate matter to manage at a distance from Washington, he rarely wrote but sent Nicolay or me. The house remained full of people nearly all day. At noon the President took a little lunch, a biscuit, a glass of milk in winter, some fruit or grapes in summer. He dined between five and six, and we went off to our dinner also. Before dinner was over, members and senators would come back and take up the whole evening. Sometimes, though rarely, he shut himself up and would see no one. Sometimes, he would run away to a lecture or concert or theater for the sake of a little rest. He was very abstemious, ate less than any man I know. He drank nothing but water, not from principle, but because he did not like wine or spirits. Once, in rather dark days early in the war, a temperance committee came to him and said that the reason we did not win was because our army drank so much whiskey as to bring the curse of the Lord upon them. He said it was rather unfair on the part of the aforesaid curse, as the other side drank more and worse whiskey than ours did. He read very little. He scarcely ever looked into a newspaper unless I called his attention to an article on some special subject. 
he frequently said i know more about it than any of them it is absurd to call him a modest man no great man was ever modest it was his intellectual arrogance and unconscious assumption of superiority that men like chase and sumner never could forgive i believe that lincoln is well understood by the people but there is a patent-leather kid-glove set who know no more of him than an owl does of a comet blazing into his winking eyes their estimates of him are in many cases disgraceful exhibitions of ignorance and prejudice their effeminate natures shrink instinctively from the contact of a great reality like lincoln's character i consider lincoln's republicanism incarnate with all its faults and all its virtues as in spite of some rudeness republicanism is the sole hope of a sick world so lincoln with all his foibles is the greatest character since christ bancroft's eulogy on lincoln never pleased the latter's lifelong friends those who knew him so thoroughly and well february sixteenth eighteen sixty six david davis who had heard it wrote me you will see mr bancroft's oration before this reaches you it is able but mr lincoln is in the background his analysis of mr lincoln's character is superficial it did not please me how did it satisfy you on the twenty second he again wrote mr bancroft totally misconceived mr lincoln's character in applying unsteadiness and confusion to it mr lincoln grew more steady and resolute and his ideas were never confused if there were any changes in him after he got here they were for the better i thought him always master of his subject he was a much more self-possessed man than i thought he thought for himself which is a rare quality nowadays how could bancroft know anything about lincoln except as he judged of him as the public do he never saw him and is himself as cold as an icicle i should never have selected an old democratic politician and that one from massachusetts to deliver an eulogy on lincoln in eighteen sixty three mr lincoln was informed one morning that among the visitors to the anteroom of the white house was a man who claimed to be his relative he walked out and was surprised to find his boyhood friend and cousin dennis hanks the latter had come to see his distinguished relative on a rather strange mission a number of persons living in coles county in illinois offended at the presence and conduct of a few soldiers who were at home from the war on furlough at the town of charleston had brought about a riot in which encounter several of the latter had been killed several of the civilian participants who had acted as leaders in the strife had been arrested and sent to fort mchenry or some other place of confinement equally as far from their homes the leading lawyers and politicians of central illinois were appealed to but they and all others who had tried their hands had been signally unsuccessful in their efforts to secure the release of the prisoners 
meanwhile some one of a sentimental turn had conceived the idea of sending garrulous old dennis hanks to washington fondly believing that his relationship to the president might in this last extremity be of some avail the novelty of the project secured its adoption by the prisoner's friends and dennis arrayed in a suit of new clothes set out for the national capital i have heard him describe this visit very minutely how his appearance in washington and his mission struck mr lincoln can only be imagined the president after listening to him and learning the purpose of his visit retired to an adjoining room and returned with an extremely large roll of papers labeled the charleston riot case which he carefully untied and gravely directed his now diplomatic cousin to read subsequently and as if to continue the joke he sent him down to confer with the secretary of war he soon returned from the latter's office with the report that the head of the war department could not be found and it was well enough that he did not meet that abrupt and oftentimes demonstrative official in the course of time however the latter happened in at the executive mansion and there in the presence of dennis the president sought to reopen the now noted charleston case adopting mr hanks's version the secretary with his characteristic plainness of speech referring to the prisoners declared that every d -d one of them should be hung even the humane and kindly inquiry of the president if these men should return home and become good citizens who would be hurt failed to convince the distinguished secretary that the public good could be promoted by so doing president not feeling willing to override the judgment of his war secretary in this instance further consideration of the case ceased and his cousin returned to his home in illinois with his mission unaccomplished the subsequent history of these riot cases i believe is that the prisoners were returned to illinois to be tried in the state courts there and that by successive changes of venue and continuances the cases were finally worn out dennis retained a rather unfavorable impression of mr stanton whom he described as a frisky little yankee with a short coat-tail i asked abe he said to me once why he didn't kick him out i told him he was too fresh altogether Lincoln's answer was, if I did, Dennis, it would be difficult to find another man to fill his place. The President's cousin sat in the office during the endless interviews that take place between the head of their nation and the latter's loyal subjects. He saw modesty and obscurity mingling with the arrogance of pride and distinction. One day an attractive and handsomely dressed woman called to procure the release from prison of a relative in whom she professed the deepest interest she was a good talker and her winning ways seemed to be making a deep impression on the president after listening to her story he wrote a few lines on a card enclosing it in an envelope and directing her to take it to the secretary of war before sealing it he showed it to dennis it read this woman dear stanton is a little smarter than she looks to be she had, womanlike, evidently overstated her case. 
before night another woman called more humble in appearance more plainly clad it was the old story father and son both in the army the former in prison could not the latter be discharged from the army and sent home to help his mother a few strokes of the pen a gentle nod of the head and the little woman her eyes filling with tears and expressing a grateful acknowledgment her tongue could not utter passed out during this visit mr lincoln presented dennis with a silver watch which the latter still retains as a memento alike of the donor and his trip to washington end of section twenty nine recording by bill mosley bernardo texas u s a